Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Okay, yeah. good afternoon everyone and welcome. My name is Danielle Mason and I'm the Director of Education here at the RSA and I'm delighted to be hosting the event today. So, the RSA uh, touts itself as an enlightenment organisation and I'm really proud to work for an institution that embraces the enlightenment belief that reason and science and the ingenuity of human beings will ultimately deliver progress for everyone. And especially so at a time when it really does feel as though reason and science are under attack from many quarters at the moment. But it's definitely true that a commitment to reason and science and the search for answers can sometimes lead us to uncomfortable discussions. And when that happens, we can either shut down the debate or we can open it up and try to find a way through that aligns with those enlightenment values of liberty, tolerance and progress. So I think our topic today raises some of those difficult questions. Our speaker is Robert Plomin. Um, Robert argues that his research demonstrates that genetic DNA differences are the major systematic force in making us who we are as individuals our height, our weight, the way we look, but also our mental health, our cognitive abilities and our personalities. The environment in which we're raised is important, he says, but it's not as influential as we think. And more than this, his book Blueprint um, reveals how with new technology, these features of DNA actually give us the ability to predict a range of psychological traits from birth. And today, Robert's going to talk specifically about the role of genetics in education and the influence our genes play when it comes to academic attainment. Robert is the Research Professor of Behavioural Genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College, London. He directs the world-renowned twin study, TEDS, which has followed over 10,000 twin pairs for more than 20 years since birth. He's the author and co-author of a range of books, including G is for Genes, which is about the impact of genetics on education. And just yesterday, he won the University of Louisville Gourmet Prize for Psychology. So I'm delighted to start this conversation by introducing to the stage Professor Robert Plomin. Well, thank you very much, Danielle. Very pleased to be here. Uh, I'm going to focus on genetics and education. It's sometimes good to think about how you did at school. What do you think is responsible for how well you did at school? It's easy to think about tangible environmental things like uh, your parents and your teachers and your schools. After 45 years of research in the field, I've come to believe that the most important factor is something you can't see or feel. It's inherited DNA differences. Now, this message of the importance of genetics is a lot of what my book's about, but I think the message is beginning to sink in. But in education, I still think it is the elephant in the classroom. People know it's there, but they pretend it's not. And uh, I'll talk about genetic influence, but I think this message is getting across, even in education, which has traditionally been quite hostile to the notion of genetic influence, for the wrong reasons, I think, which I'll mention. But what isn't understood nearly really at all is what genetic research tells us about the way the environment works. As Danielle alluded to, it, it tells us that the environment works completely differently from the way we thought it worked. So these findings, plus the impending DNA revolution, made me feel like this was the time to write a, a, a book about it, not pulling punches and telling it like I see it, which I think I can do at this stage of my career. So that's what um, Blueprint is about. Um, the subtitle is about um, how the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals, our personality, psychopathology, cognitive abilities, including school achievement, is, is the major systematic force is inherited DNA differences. The environment's important, but it works in, in an unsystematic way, different from the way we thought it worked. So this leads to a lot of provocative conclusions. I'll just flash them now. How about this? Parents matter, but they don't make a difference. Schools matter, but they don't make a difference. And heritability, that is the extent of genetic influence, is an index of equality of opportunity. Okay, so what I'd like to do in these 20 minutes is to give you a very quick overview of the book. And um, by the end of it, I think you'll understand why those conclusions aren't as crazy as they sound when you first see them. I hope you will. The book begins 
with a discussion of how and how much genetic influence is important. How do we know genetic influence is important? So it discusses methods like the twin method that compares identical and non-identical twins, adoption studies like identical twins reared apart, but also um, more common adoption like birth parents and their adopted away children with whom they share genes but not environment, and then birth and then adopted children with their adoptive parents with whom they share nurture environment but not nature genetics. And what I conclude in that section is something, it sounds hard to believe, but I don't think it's controversial in science, and that is all psychological, all behavioral traits, personality, psychopathology, cognitive abilities, show substantial genetic influence. On average, about 50% of the differences between us in those traits are due to inherited DNA differences. The environment accounts for the other half, but that's the other half of this story. It works differently from the way we thought it worked. Some traits, like cognitive abilities and educational achievements, show more genetic influence, maybe 60%. But the point is we're talking about huge genetic effects. Um, and it's not just the heritability that's come out of genetic research. I think some of the biggest findings in the behavioral sciences have come out from studying psychological traits in genetically sensitive designs, rather than assuming it's all nurture, to have designs that separate nature and nurture. And I only have time to talk about two of those. And the two of these five findings uh, are examples of the ways in which genetic research has told us amazing things about the way the environment works. And the first one I call the nature of nurture. Developmental psychology consists of thousands of reports of correlations between, say, what parents do and how children turn out. And for example, parents who read a lot to their children, that's correlated with how well the children do at school in reading. But we all know, don't we, that correlation does not imply causation. But when you see correlations like that, it's hard to resist interpreting them environmentally. It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, parents who read a lot, their kids are made to read better environmentally. But what I want the book to do is to get people to just ask, what about genetics? So what about genetics in the correlation between parents reading to kids and kids reading at school? Parents and offspring are 50% similar genetically. You might predict that there could be a straight genetic effect, that parents who like to read a lot and are into reading have kids who are into reading. But even more importantly, I think, is that parent, the correlations between parents' behavior and kids' outcomes goes the other way. Parents are responding to genetic differences in their children. So that's the nature of nurture idea. And it's important because it, what looks like systematic effects of the environment, that is parents reading to kids, kids doing well in reading at school, are often genetic effects in disguise. So the second finding begins with the question, why are children in the same family so different? So environmental theories have trouble with this. How is it that kids in the same family differ so much in their educational achievement? Because they do. They have the same parents. They go to the same schools. Why are they so different? Genetics predicts it because siblings are 50% similar genetically, but that means they're 50% different genetically. Genetic research shows that what makes kids in a family similar, say in academic achievement, is genetics. What makes them different is genetics and environment. But the fact that they're growing up in the same family doesn't have an effect environmentally on them. So that the important environmental factors operate in such a way as to make two kids in the same family different. That's what we call non-shared environment. So that's the second big finding here. We've spent 30 years trying to understand what are these factors, environmental factors, that make kids in the same family different from one another. And after 30 years of research, we've really come up empty-handed. And so in the book, I conclude that the important environmental factors, and they are very important, they account for almost 50% of the differences between kids. They're not the systematic effects of parenting or schools, uh, uh, connoted by the word um, nurture, but rather there are these idiosyncratic, non-systematic environmental factors, in a word, chance. And the important point here is that parents and teachers do not control chance. So the first half of the book, um, in summary, involves these three sort of points, that heritability differences, genetic differences are very important, 
The environment's important too, but it works very differently from the way we thought it worked. It's not making kids in the family with the same parent and same school similar. It makes them different. And I've concluded that that's mostly chance. And then the third thing is that what looks like systematic effects of the environment are often genetic effects in disguise. That's the nature of nurture. So together, these lead to the title of my book, that DNA, inherited DNA differences are the major systematic force making us who we are as individuals, the major force accounting for differences in kids' school achievement. The environment's important, but it's not working systematically in the way the word nurture connotes. So what I'm saying is that if you were cloned, and your clone, who's your identical twin, genetically identical to you, if your clone is reared in a different woman prenatally, raised in a different family with different parents from you, goes to a different school, has different friends, the educational achievement of your clone would be very similar to yours. And that's because heritability accounts for most of the differences. The environment works in a non-shared way. The fact that you're raised in different families doesn't make you less similar than if you were raised in the same family. And thirdly, what looks like systematic effects of the environment are genetic effects in disguise. Now, this isn't just hypothetical. There was a great award-winning documentary that came out last year called Three Identical Strangers that illustrates these points. Um, Bobby uh, grew up in a very wealthy family in Long Island near New York. And when he went to university in upstate New York, on the first day of university, everyone's calling him, uh, this is Eddie. No, this is Bobby. They're calling him Eddie. Then he meets Eddie. It's like looking in a mirror. They realized they had the same birth date, and they were adopted from the same adoption agency in New York City. The publicity that came from this, separated identical twins where the parents and twins didn't know there was another one, led to this remarkable incident where there were, there's a third. Sometimes identical twins are caused by the same fertilized egg splitting in the first few days of life. Sometimes one of those splits again. So these are genetically identical clones of one another. But what's interesting about these, for reasons you might ask, but we don't have time to talk about now, but you might want to raise it in the question period, they were raised in extremely different environments. Uh, as I said, uh, Bobby was raised in a very wealthy family, and his parents were kind of absentee parents. They, one was a high-flying lawyer and the other a high-flying doctor. In the middle there is, is David, who was raised in an immigrant family where they ran a small shop, but the parents were extremely lovely, lo loving to all of the boys, they came to hang out there and they called the father, the adoptive father, Bubala, which is Yiddish for big, huggable, lovable guy. And um, Eddie was raised in a middle-class family where the father was a high school teacher and a strict disciplinarian. But despite these very big differences in their family environment, what's remarkable from the film is how similar they are, not just physically, but also in personality. They're all very outgoing. In psychopathology, they're all depressive. In fact, very unusually, all three had been treated for depression in adolescence long before they knew about the others. And that's rare in adolescence to get actual treatment for depression. And they were similar in their academic achievement. They're sort of of a type. They're bright. They pride themselves on being well-read. All three of them just never liked school, and they never did very well at school. And when they got together, they found each other at age 19. They dropped out of university, moved to New York, set up a nightclub restaurant called Triplets that made a million, a million dollars in the first year. And that's an example of the nature of nurture. You know, they chose an environment that was conducive to their genetic tendencies. So it's just an anecdote, though, but it's backed up. It, it dramatically illustrates the points I'm making, but it also... Um, it's backed up by lots of other research on twins adopted apart, other adoption designs like birth parents and their adopted away kids, and adoptive parents and their adopted kids, as, as well as by studies of identical and non-identical twins reared together. And so I don't have time to go into these methods particularly, but all of the data converge on the conclusions that I've described to you. The implications of these findings are discussed in the last two chapters of the first half of the book, and that's where we get to these things. Can you see it all? Parents matter. Parents are important. It's a lifelong relationship. Kids can't survive without a parent. But differences in parenting don't make a difference in outcomes. And it, I'm writing my next book about that because that's the thing that's gotten the most attention. 
And that's because most of the differences, say, in educational outcome are due to genetics. The important environmental factors are non-shared. The fact this parent would work with one kid, he'd probably work with the other kid. Those systematic effects of parents don't make a difference. What looks like systematic effects, like this parent helping the child with homework, um, are often genetic effects in disguise. Similarly with schools. Schools matter. That's why we have universal health um, education around the world, because kids need to be taught literacy and numeracy skills. But differences in the quality of schools within a country, like within the UK, don't make a difference. That's because most of the differences are heritable. The important factors are non-shared. Kids going to the same school aren't more similar in their educational achievement once you control for genetics. And then the nature of nurture, which um, it can be best explained by an example. Do you know that kids in selective schools in the UK have a whole grade higher GCSE scores than kids in comprehensive schools? It's always that correlation is assumed to be causal, but correlations aren't causal, and that one isn't either. It's easy to think, well, they have better resources in the selective schools, better paid teachers. But actually, it's merely a self-fulfilling prophecy. In selective schools, you're selecting kids, on average, who, on the basis of their heritable traits like ability and achievement, do well at school, and then they do well at school. If you correct for what they're selected on, prior ability and achievement, there's no difference in the GCSE scores of kids in selective and non-selective schools. And it's, there's no added value. So that's why I'm saying it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it is an example of the nature of nurture. And then for this one, a lot of people think that genetics is somehow um, antithetical to the idea of equality. But it's not. In fact, I think it's an index of equality of opportunity. So if you get rid of environmental sources of inequality, like wealth, privilege, access, you're still left with the genetic differences. And genetic differences will account for more of the remaining um, differences in educational achievement if you've gotten rid of the environmental sources of inequality. So that's why I'd say heritability increases. As a result, of, it, it, the heritability increases indicates educational equality of opportunity. And it's important to distinguish that from equality of outcome. It, it's impossible because there's genetic differences. So that's an unrealistic goal, equality of outcomes. But equality of opportunity is something I think most people would be in favor of. And this thinking suggests a completely different approach to social mobility. It turns our thinking on its head. So maybe we can talk about that later as well. So I would have been happy if my career had ended there. But then 10 years ago, along came the DNA revolution. And it's first going to have its effect in health, but in turn, it'll feed over into education and other social areas as well. By reading the DNA blueprint, we're able to predict problems and promise from birth because your DNA doesn't change during your life. That allows you to prevent problems before they occur. And it's already transforming science. All the life sciences are changed by the DNA revolution. And eventually society, including parenting and education, will be changed, and it will also change how we understand ourselves. So this is the second half of the book. Begins by talking about basic DNA stuff, early unsuccessful attempts to find genes, why we're successful now in finding genes. And this is what I wanted to just mention to you are the ingredients of the DNA revolution, because this is where it's going to affect education. First, you got to get DNA. You know, you begin life with a single cell that has half the chromosomes from your mother, half from your father. And that unique set of DNA is the same DNA in all of the cells in your body, trillions of cells. So you can get DNA from any cell, like blood, for example, or hair follicles. Most often, if you've done direct-to-consumer testing, it's uh, spitting in a tube. Saliva doesn't carry D cells, but it... It, it will have sloughed off cells from inside your mouth. And all you need is one cell. You can extract DNA from that one cell, and you can genotype it. So the second step here, the second ingredient, is genotyping. 99% of our 3 billion base pairs of DNA, and we're talking about this four-letter code of A, C, T's, and G's in a spiral staircase, the double helix of DNA, that's one chromosome, and you have another chromosome from your other parent. So you have these 23 pairs of chromosomes. Well, 99% of all these bases will be similar for your two chromosomes, as well as for everyone in this room and in the country. 
but 1% differ. So on one chromosome, you might have a C, and on the other chromosome, a T. That's a nucleotide base. That's what these steps in the spiral staircase of DNA are. A single nucleotide polymorphism, SNP. Polymorphism means multiple body. So then the next step is just say, does that genetic difference make a difference? So you correlate that SNP difference with a trait. The first one that was done um, with using these new methods was a correlation between a SNP on chromosome 16 and body mass index. And it, uh, there are two alleles, A and T. Some, some of your chromosomes will have A's, some will have T. You could have TT, AT, or AA. If you're unlucky like me, if you have AA, you're six pounds heavier on average, us people with AA, than people with TT. Okay, so that's what the correlation is about. Now that looks like a big effect, six pounds, but it's actually only accounts for 1%. This SNP accounts for 1% of the differences between people in weight, body mass index. And so at first when it was published in Science, people said, well, it's just a small fact, you know, who cares? But you'll see why you care in just a minute. Oops. The, the next step is um, this technological revolution that happened about 10 years ago. Instead of doing one SNP at a time, which is what we had to do early on, this little chip the size of a postage stamp genotypes millions of SNPs very cheaply, less than 50 pounds, very quickly, less than a night, you know, a few hours, and very uh, accurately. That allows us to take the third step here, and that is called genome-wide association. Instead of looking at one SNP at a time, you look at all the SNPs in the whole genome, and you say, do any of those relate to your trait? And what's been found throughout the life sciences is that, um, this is, the re is that many, many genes of small effect are important. There are no major gene effects for any common disorders, medical or psychological, or, uh, common, or quantitative traits. So this is the way they're presented. This is the results for 10 million SNPs across 23 chromosomes. That line is the line of statistical significance. So the SNPs above that line are statistically significant corrected for a million tests because you're looking at a lot of tests. So this is what's been found throughout the life sciences, and it took a while to adjust to this because people thought you'd find a few genes of big effect, but instead you're finding many thousands of genes of very small effect. And this is the one that's changed my life. Last year, a study of over a million people, a genome-wide association study was reported that found 10,000 SNPs that are above this line of significance. And the reason you get these, each, each dot is a SNP, but SNPs close together on a chromosome correlate. So if you find one SNP that's related, you'd expect others near it to be related as well. But altogether, the point here is that, um, by, uh, that you're, you, you find that, um, that there are thousands of SNPs that are associated with educational attainment, which is not achievement. This is just years of schooling. Okay, so like for educational attainment as well as for hundreds of other disorders and traits, all, everybody in the life science concludes that many genes of small effect size are responsible. The biggest effects account for 1% of the variance. Do you remember that AT SNP for BMI? I said 1%. They said, well, that's ridiculously small. The only reason they found it is because it was one of the larger effects, because back then they didn't have studies big enough to detect the small effects. So what do you do with this? So this is what's new in the last few years. And the final step, I promise, we've gone from DNA to SNPs to genome-wide association, polygenic scores. People realize that you can add up these SNPs, even if there's thousands of them, and get a score that's your individual score predicting a trait, like body mass index, or in this case, educational attainment. So we take each, uh, we take my SNPs, say, and say, okay, this is SNP1. Uh, do I have a, 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 a genotype that is positively associated with educational attainment. So we add them up across all tens of thousands of SNPs and get a score that predicts educational attainment. So this is what the life sciences are all about these days, using the results of genome-wide association studies to create polygenic scores. And for mental illness, a lot of the money goes into mental illness in psychology. For schizophrenia, we can explain 7% of the liability to schizophrenia in the population just knowing your DNA. And increasingly, educationally related behavioral problems like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and autism spectrum disorder 
are getting attention. But the star, since the last year, is educational achievement. I took the polygenic score for educational attainment in my UK sample of 7,000 kids and showed, I want to, you know, they haven't finished their schooling, so you don't know what their educational attainment is. I wanted to say, how does that score predict actual tested achievement? And the answer is, it predicts achievement better than it does attainment. It accounts for 15% of the differences between kids in educational achievement on the GCSE at age 16. So that's the largest effect that's been found so far. It's a lot less than 100%, but it'll never be 100% because it's 60% heritable. It's a long way from 60%, 15%, but that's only in the last year, and I have no doubt in the next year or two we'll at least double this predictive power. And even in an absolute term, 15% is a lot of the variance. The variance means the differences between kids. It predicts kids' GCSE better than their parents' income, for example. But how about this one? You know, Ofsted ratings, we, examiners go to schools for two days and they, they do very good assessments of the, all sorts of aspects of school quality. How much do GCSE scores explain of the variance in GCSE? Did I get that wrong? How, how well do Ofsted scores predict GCSE? And the answer is 4%. So we can predict with DNA four times better than you can predict with Ofsted, yet that weak relationship with Ofsted is what a lot of lives are changed by, right? That's what league tables are about. That's why parents move across the street and pay 20% more for a house because it's in the right school district. So it's not a trivial effect. And I just wanted to expand that a bit in, in my last few minutes here. And what I did is I took the sample of 7,000, divided into what, 10 groups of 700, you see, and from the lowest to the highest polygenic score. And what you can see is these are GCSE scores, and you can see they go up linearly, and that the lowest polygenic score group have an average grade of C, and the highest have an average grade of A minus. Now, we're only explaining 15% of the variance, so it, it's probabilistic, like all our predictions are. And so 75% of the kids, this is a box plot, 75% of the kids with the lowest polygenic score have grades of C or lower, but 25% have higher grades, and some of them even have A's. That's the way it goes. I mean, we don't have perfect prediction. But, so it's a probabilistic, but it's still a fairly strong prediction, and it has real life significance. 25% of the kids with the lowest polygenic scores go to university, whereas 75% in the highest group go to university. So this is really happening now, and polygenic scores are completely reliable, unbiased, cheap, and unlike other predictors, they can predict from birth that, um, because DNA doesn't change throughout life. So you can predict years of schooling, educational achievement, or schizophrenia from birth just as well as you can from adulthood. And I think these scores are going to be applied in education eventually, and that's to predict problems and prevent them. All of medicine is moving from a model of curing problems to preventing problems. And precision medicine is the big thing. Don't have one-size-fits-all treatments. Have treatments that are specific to a person's genetic propensities. And we can predict differences within families which are big, and you can, I don't believe in selection, but if you are going to select kids for secondary schools, I don't see any logical reason why you wouldn't use DNA scores to, to um, supplement your prediction. So the book ends with uh, 60 pages of notes, which give a lot of details, and with an epilogue. And the epilogue explains why I wanted to write the book, and that's because I wanted to give people the DNA literacy to be able to have conversations about this because I believe now is the time to launch this public discussion about the applications and implications of the DNA revolution because it will affect all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Robert. Um, very thought-provoking. Um, we're going to go to audience for questions shortly, but there's a few things I'd like to Good. pick up in a, few, uh, in a bit more detail first. So to start with, I think a lot of people find it hard to believe that genes play such a significant role in our personalities and our life stories, <clears throat> as the book says. What's the most compelling and transparent evidence that you'd present to a layperson to support the claims in the book about the importance of genes? Well, first of all, I've done surveys of the public, and the public is much more accepting of genetic influence than you would think for personality, psychopathology, cognitive abilities. They underestimate genetic influence by maybe half, but they, 
first of all, if you ask about eye color, everyone accepts eye color is highly heritable. Most people accept height is highly heritable. When you get to things like weight, you might be surprised to know it's 70% heritable. And when you turn to behavioral traits, you know, um, people, they, they, I'm surprised, though, there's no one who says these aren't, things aren't heritable. They all say it's somewhat heritable. On average, they say it's 40% heritable, and it's 60% heritable. So I think there's much greater acceptance than people might think. I have to almost leave the methods go for the book if you're interested in it. Yeah. But these are methods that have been around for 100 years, twin studies, adoption studies, family studies. And now the new thing is you can estimate heritability with DNA alone. All of these results converge on these conclusions I've mentioned, that inherited DNA differences account for most of the differences. So it's really the convergence of data. All of these methods, the twin method has some problems. The adoption method has problems. But they're different problems. Yet you come to the same conclusion which is very powerful. Okay, thank you. Um, so moving on to the polygenic scores, which you described. Mm -hmm. um, so as I understand it, and I, I'm new to the topic, it's the fact that those scores correlate with behaviours and outcomes, which makes them so useful. And yet, as you say, those correlations aren't particularly strong. So what is it about polygenic scores which makes them so powerful if it's not the strength of the relationship? Well, it is the strength of the relationship, and the strength relationships are strong. Okay. I'm just saying, in the behavioral sciences, uh, we make a lot of decisions in our society based on very weak correlations. Like, what do you think the correlation is between drunk driving and having an accident? It's actually very weak. A lot of people are bad drivers when they're sober. And some people can, you know, I've done experiments on this, they can drive they can surpass sober people on any test you want to give them. Now, I don't think that's an excuse to say people should drive drunk. I'm just saying we make big decisions, like throwing people in jail, based on much weaker relationships. So, you know, I think it, these are fairly strong relationships. But you take something like height, you can predict at birth what a child's height will be with 25% of the variance. It's, it's say, 80% heritable. Infant height, nothing predicts adult height from infant height. So these aren't perfect predictors. And some people say, oh, well, then what good are they? Well, we don't ever have predictors that are perfect. We don't have predictors even anywhere near the power of these predictors. You know, it's just amazing to me. The thing you want to ask about is effect size. You know, like in education, girls are better at verbal, boys are better at math. Well, what's the effect size? It's 1% of the variance. If all you know about a kid is whether they're a boy or a girl, you don't know anything about their verbal or mathematical ability. Yet, you know, nobody says... Well, that's only 1% of the variance. Um, so, so this is a, a question that's a little bit um, specific to me and my background. But in social science, if you take a massive sample size and put loads of variables into your model, you'll be cautioned against the risk of sort of spurious, significant relationships. So I know it's not an analogous situation, but can you explain why the same isn't a risk for polygenic schools or if it is what you do yeah. to guard against you know, it. definitely it. is a risk. This is the problem of multiple testing. You know, we have these artificial uh, indicators like a probability level 0.05. So that's what people talk about as statistical significance. That just means if you did the same experiment 100 times, you'd get a positive result by chance five times. Yeah. You know? So you're saying you, you beat that. So it's not proving something. It's just saying it's unlikely that it's a false positive report, right? But what if you did 10 tests? And this is, you know, I don't know if you had a, talks about this, but the biggest issue now is the replication crisis in science. And it's, this is it. Yeah. Because if you have 10 different tests that you did, you say, oh, look, that one's significant. Or if I analyze it this way, it's significant. Probability goes out the window, yet you pretend it's a P of 0.05. So one thing you have to do is correct for the number of tests you look at. And that's why in science now, we're very much encouraged demanded in some cases to pre-register findings. So you don't then just look at the data and say, oh, look, that's significant. And then you pretend that it was something you predicted. You have to pre-register a finding like that. And so here, we're dealing with the, the mother of all multiple tests, because we're looking at millions of SNPs. And so that these p-values, instead of the magic 0.05, they're corrected for a million tests. Okay. So instead of P of 0.05, we have to reach a P probability value of P of 0.05 with seven zeros in front of it. Right. 10 to the minus 8. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I find that fascinating. Um, 
Okay, so in the... But the thing is they replicate. <laughs> that in the end is the big thing. You want to say, when we get these results, we create a polygenic score, we predict educational achievement, height, uh, schizophrenia, in an independent sample. Okay. And that's what is the bottom line here, replication. Okay, thank you. So in the book, you discuss polygenic scores in terms of percentiles. So you might talk about a person being at the 90th percentile for the score for intelligence. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean they're in the top 10% of intelligence. It doesn't even mean, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong in a moment, that they would be in the top 10% of intelligence if we lived in a world where only genes mattered to our development. Mm -hmm. It means that for a variable which is related to intelligence, they're in the top 10%. So that seems to me the, the kind of metric that's absolutely ripe for misinterpretation mm. and misuse. Do you think that the people who work with these metrics have a duty to find a way to talk about them which reflects what they actually mean? Well, I think they actually do mean this, that this is the top 10%. See, my polygenic score for BMI is at the 94th percentile. So I'm meant to be a genetic fatty, you could say. But that is the 94th percentile of the polygenic scores. Yeah. I, in fact, am proud to say I'm only at the 70th percentile of actual body weight. So I deserve credit. You know, I'm way below my genetic <laughs> prediction here. So it really, I think it describes that well, but there's a lot of effort going into, like 23andMe presents stuff pretty well, the direct-to-consumer company, where it's, it's sort of getting at what you're talking about. You want to get a range of confidence interval around that. You want to say in absolute terms, what does that convert to? Yeah, you know? yeah. So there's a lot of interest in that. Um, but um, you, know, you try hard to do this, but it's, it's difficult to get across statistical arguments. Yeah. But I think all you can do is be clear and hope in the end it will make sense to people. But it does sort of. If you've done 23andMe, how many people have done that? Great. That's, yeah. And do you know one of the things you get out of that is whether, what your risk is for Alzheimer's. Now, it's not a good polygenic score, but there's one gene. It's a bit like that SNP I showed you for uh, body mass index. It's, it's the biggest single gene factor and in, in Alzheimer's. And I don't know if you guys did this, but um, James Watson, who won the Nobel Prize, decided he didn't want that information because there's nothing you can do about it. But if, if you're in the lucky, unlucky 1%, you could find out that you have a 60% risk of having Alzheimer's when you're older. And because it's the wild west of direct-to-consumer companies, the help you would get is, well, here's a link you might want to find out about Alzheimer's. You know, no support whatsoever for it. So people divide down the middle. I mean... What, like, if, um, if you did 23andMe and you had <coughs> access to this information, how many would want to know that they have this huge genetic risk for Alzheimer's? <coughs> and, and how many would not want to know? Yeah, it's, it always it divides almost right down the middle. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm in with the former group, knowledge is power, forewarned is forearmed. I would say, actually, there is something you can do. You can't do anything medically or biologically now. But what you can do is prepare for it socially, financially, for example, and maybe an extra dollop of carpe diem. <laughs> but I, I'm, I, I sympathize with people who say, no, it would ruin my life if I knew I was at this high genetic risk yeah. for having Alzheimer's. But um, that's an example. That's real, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, uh, and it gets more complicated with a polygenic score, but it's the same idea. It's just talking about your risk for these things because it's never going to be 100%. Yeah, but I, su I suppose um, what I'm trying to get at is that human beings aren't always very good at understanding risks and probabilities Absolutely. and things like that. And you mentioned the sort of wild west of the commercial world. Whose duty is it to make sure that these things are presented clearly, especially in a world where we, we stop talking about just personal issues, but how the state might act or, mm -hmm. you know. Well, that will come up if we talk about um, the future of the DNA revolution, because it's, it's going to happen on the NHS. So uh, that's a little bit of a spoiler, but I'll come back to that then. Are we going to do that um, later? Uh, so it's not in my question. So do you maybe want to touch on it now? Uh, <laughs> no, I was told that we were going to have a, a, se a separate section on Oh, well, we'll do some Q&A, so we'll see what, we'll see what okay. we cover. Well, if I don't get to that, then I have these slides on the future of the DNA revolution, and it ends by saying that the NHS, well, that the government has given 80, who knows what the government will be in four weeks, but the government has given 80 million pounds 
to a company to do genotyping for the NHS. So if in the new year, if you go to the hospital, get blood taken, you'll be asked if you want your genotyping information for free. And so this is part of the answer, though. I would rather, people worry about the NHS, but they believe in the NHS in some ways. There might be data breaches or whatever, but you know, unlike 23andMe, they're not going to sell you genotypes for, what do they do, three, three billion pounds or something like that, uh, anonymously. But the NHS, you would trust to tell you what you need to know. And you could decide. They've done this in Finland and Estonia, and it's a best seller. I mean, everybody wants to do it. And you can decide, do you want all your information like 23andMe? Do you want to know if you're at genetic risk for Alzheimer's? Or do you want the NHS to tell you what you can do something about? What's driving it is medical stuff. You can predict cardiovascular de disease and strokes as, as well with DNA as you can with physiological measures. And the important thing is you can pr pr predict that early. Yeah. And the better preventions work early. You can predict and prevent long before you have any physiological signs of these problems. So uh, severe heart attack costs the NHS 700,000 pounds or something. All you gotta do is prevent a few heart attacks and you've almost paid for the system. And the other thing I love about it, it's gonna be the salvation of the NHS because how are insurance-based health systems like the US gonna survive the DNA revolution? Because if you find out you're at high risk for cardiovascular disease, you're going to insure yourself for it. It's illegal, but you would do it probably. But also, I think you can trust the insurance companies to be very savvy to big data, and they'll probably find that out too and say, I'm not insuring you, you unless you want to pay 10 times more for it. So I, I think I'm really excited about it and the potential of it, but you can well imagine there's a lot of pushback as well on ethical issues, but the conversation has begun. But then Matt Hadcock last month threw another... Um, we call it monkey wrench into the works in the US, and that is um, doing whole genome sequencing of all neonates. Now, you know, you may not realize, we already genotype all infants. We've been doing it for 45 years. And that's the Guthrie test, that heel prick, where you get a little bit of blood and you test for a few genetic diseases, like phenylketonuria. You do it because you can prevent those with a dietary intervention. So I think it'll be that sort of cost-benefit ratio. But his point is, you can do a whole genome sequence where you don't just do SNPs, you do all three billion base pairs of DNA for not much more money. And then you get, that's it, that's all there is genetically. So you can get any sort of genetic information out of that. But you can imagine the pushback on that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so ultimately these questions about presentation of risk and data will fall to government as well at some point. I, I always think that a lot of these things will be worked out in the medical area. Okay. Where they have a lot more money and a lot more people doing this work. Okay, thank you. Um, so before we go to the audience, just a few questions on education in particular. Um, uh, we've touched on this in, in uh, other areas. How do the most predictive polygenic scores compare to past educational performance as a predictor of future educational mm -hmm. attainment? And why would you use probabilistic scores when you can just look at the actual prior performance of a child when you're mm -hmm. tailoring what they need? Well, because you can't predict at all in infancy or early childhood. Mm -hmm. So if you want to predict reading problems, what are you going to give a kid, a three-year-old, you're going to give them a reading test? You can't. There's n nothing you can give them that would predict their reading problems. So a lot of the prediction has to be early, and DNA is the best predictor around in early life. So you could actually predict who's going to have reading problems, and just like predictive and preventive medicine, you don't wait till they get to school and fail at reading. You do things earlier to intervene, like with language interventions. There's good language interventions, but in general, the interventions that work aren't these cheap tricks like growth mindset or something. They require, they're expensive and intensive, but they work. You can't do it for everybody, but if you could identify kids at particular risk, you could afford to do that. So I think that's a good example of it. When you're talking about um, later selection, I still think there's an opportunity, even selecting into secondary schools. I wish we didn't do that, but I mean, if we are going to do that, they do it on the basis of heritable characteristics. But there are some kids, I think, from very socially disadvantaged environments who just aren't into testing cultures. They wouldn't be into the interviews that you have to do at the, the best sort of selective schools. So I think DNA could even add to that. But I'm, I'm not keen for that to happen, but I think it, it will probably happen. And the thing I had to gloss over that nobody really gets, but it's going to be a big deal, and that is that DNA predicts differences within a family. And you always think if one kid does well at school, then you take the other kid into school, because, you know, of course, same, same stock or whatever. But actually, there's big differences genetically within a family. And so, um, particularly... 
telling to me because, you know, I always loved school and did well at school, and I read early. My sister never liked school, never did well at school. I don't know what her polygenic score is, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem right that because I find it easy and fun, I get a lot of credit, and because she wasn't doing well at school, it's, well, she's obviously not trying hard enough. You know, and I think, I think genetics might be useful for that and perhaps guiding parents to realize that maybe not all kids are meant to go to university. I mean, you can, you can make them do it. You can put in extra effort. But at some point, you have to say, well, why? I mean, is, is the golden yardstick of a university education the ultimate criterion of worthiness? I mean, aren't there lots of other things that kids could do that maybe fit their interests and ability grade? I don't think we need more professors. We need more plumbers and nurses and electricians and caregivers. Okay, so sticking on that, you're very clear throughout the book, and you say it multiple times, that these scores are probabilistic, not deterministic. But when you start to think about uh, tailored interventions, then it, that's when you're making a decision about what's actually going to happen to a child based on probability. Isn't that necessarily moving into the realm of determinism? Are things that work on a societal level for averages, is there a fairness question when you start talking about individuals? Uh, I, don't, I don't really accept the premise there. Like you worked at EEF for many years. They've done 185 randomized controlled trials. You don't ask the question there, do you? You say, well, no, we're going to do something and we're going to make kids do better at school, right? Yeah. It's an intervention. And they don't work, by and large. <laughs> Despite the fact that you only get the money to do it, if you've proven that there's some good reason for yeah. it. But what I'm interested in doing is using DNA to predict that it, whether it works for some kids and not others, rather than assuming it works the same way for everybody. But you are, you're picking the children based on something about them which is predictive, not deterministic, whereas an RCT is completely random in that respect. Well, you're often picking socially disadvantaged kids based yeah. on yeah. free school meals, you know? Yeah. It isn't that different, really. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, Okay, thank you so much. Um, we're going to open up for questions now. Um, uh, so, can I ask you to wait for the microphone so that the people viewing online can hear you? Keep your questions short and keep them as questions, if you can, please. And I'm going to take a couple of, 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 at a time and then we'll come to Robert for response. So, who has a question? Can I start with um, the gentleman in black on the third row and the woman in the... Uh, Floral jumper on the second <laughs> row. Hi. Um, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor. Um, so you, you mentioned predictive healthcare, predictive education. Jonathan Swift was the author of Gulliver's Travels, and he said it's the folly of too many to mistake the echo of a London coffee house for the voice of the kingdom, with apologies to Rothbills, which is excellent, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I deal with economists all the time, and one of the things that's happened is the move from classical e economics to behavioural economics to think about irrationality. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll see DNA economics at some point, perhaps with anonymized, aggregated well, data sets? Yeah, it's quite interesting. You know, a lot of the best um, big data work is being done by economists because they're very sophisticated in terms of use of mathematical models. So they're very much on board, and behavioral economics is what all the Nobel Prizes are about now. It particularly uh, grating to me, because the only time at university I got less than an A was for economics, because I hated it. I was a psychologist at heart, and I kept saying, how can you say it's all a matter of money? It so obviously isn't. People are irrational in their responses. So anyway, um, I, that's sort of an answer, I suppose. <laughs> forth. I'm very worried about education and uh, how would you reassure the parents, the children and so on that they are, not, well the deterministic question, that the teacher's going to know that this child has a score of whatever it is and mm -hmm. is likely not to do so well. We all know that in, in the past teachers often assumed that boys were better than girls and focused their attention on the boys rather than the girls. And mm -hmm. Dale Spender, I don't know if you've read her book, but yeah. the same thing might happen mm -hmm. uh, if whoever is going to know have this knowledge. How are you yeah. going to reassure them? Yeah, very good question. And we do it already. The kids know who the robins and the bluebirds are. And, and, you know, teachers, if they think boys are better at 
math than girls. They really ought to be re-educated on that. However, I would step back and say it's important for teachers to recognize that uh, individual differences in kids' performance is substantially due to genetic differences. Now, that doesn't mean you say, oh, well, these kids are thick, can't do anything about it. I mean, the whole Finnish model is the idea that it, you, know, you could have a right-wing view where you say, let's put all the money in the best, educate the best, forget the rest. That's dumb because it's the intellectual capital of a whole society that matters. But you could take a left-wing perspective and say, let's put the resources in the lower end of the distribution, the kids who are going to have problems, not to give up on them, to the contrary, to put in the resources needed to get them up to minimal levels of literacy and numeracy that you need to survive in an increasingly technological society. So it's a matter of values. And one of the things I didn't get to say, because we only have 20 minutes here, is that... Um, there are no necessary policy implications of this. The policy involves your values. And it just can't make sense to put your head in the sand and pretend that genetics isn't important. There's just so much data out there saying that it is. Let's deal with that. And let's recognize if kids don't do well at school, let's not just blame the school, blame the teacher, blame the parents, if you, or blame the kid. Let's say some kids are going to have more trouble. I have six grandchildren. One of them had some birth problems and was very slow for language, didn't really speak much intelligibly till four, had a great deal of difficult reading. So what do we do? We say, oh, well, kid's going to not learn to read. No, you obviously you put more energy into it. You realize it's going to be hard, but he's now reading computer stuff anyway, you know, for, for great pleasure. So... It's, it's a great question, but um, the premise somehow is a holdover from the idea in education, genetics bad, environment good. And I think that's very questionable. Like one of my pet peeves is growth mindset, if you want to know. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll, I'll take three more questions, but we'll answer them one at a time. I'll just um, identify the participants. So who? any other questions? Um, the woman in purple here. And then the gentleman with the purple tie at the back and the gentleman at the other end here. Hi, uh, thank you very much for that. So I just wanted to run uh, just a statement past you that I hear a lot in, uh, you know, circulated a lot in educated environments and, and continued professional development and so on. And that's the following. That's, I've heard often that they say the majority of proteins have not been coded for at birth and that it is the interaction of the environment, genotype, phenotype, that determines how genes will be expressed over the course of a lifetime. Yep. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on yep. that. That's a good question. And the modern phrase is epigenetics. It's gene expression, basically. So you have 3 billion base pairs of DNA. Only maybe 10% or so is turned on in different parts of your body, you know, like blood versus liver versus brain. About 70% is turned on in your brain, for example. So a gene, to have its effect, has to be expressed. But all you inherit is DNA sequence differences. So if the DNA sequence differences relate to differences, say, in school achievement, then somehow some of those genes were expressed somewhere, probably in the brain. But we don't, know any, we don't have to know anything about what goes on between genes and behavior. We don't have to know about epigenetics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, proteomics, any of the omics, to be able to predict. Now, we'd like to understand the mechanisms, but my feeling is there's tens of thousands of tiny DNA differences. Good luck trying to figure out gene-brain behavior pathways. But for me, I'm interested in the prediction. But it's a great question. Thank you. And the gentleman at the back. W wonderful presentation. Thank you. Can, could you just continue on that path you were just on, that, mm -hmm. expanding upon that? Because that sounds like the most amount of, or the, the most pressing scientific pushback you're getting yeah. or thinking is getting right now. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me to expand on it because epigenetics is, the, um, is very popular now. Anything that's anti-Mendelian is popular. And, and Mendel's right. Never bet against Mendel. You know, that's the way genes are inherited. Epigenetics is beyond genetics in a way. It's the idea of gene expression. It's particular types of gene expression that are slow motion. You know, as you're thinking here, you're, you're, you're transcribing DNA into neurotransmitters because they don't last very long. So as you think, you express more of them. If you had a SNP there that made a difference in your thinking, then it would, every time you translate it into a neurotransmitter, it's showing up. And maybe it has a negative effect or a positive effect. So the bottom line that I hope people can remember is something that a lot of biologists still don't get. All you inherit 
is DNA sequence differences. And yet the DNA is expressed differently in different parts of the body, but if you relate DNA differences to outcomes, you don't have to know anything about what went on in between. It had to be expressed somewhere. But you don't have to even care because what you're trying to do is use DNA differences to predict. So epigenetics and gene expression, it's great stuff. More and more people are thinking of it as an index of the environment because expression has to do with transcribing DNA into RNA and then it's translated into all that we are, amino acid sequences, proteins, for example. RNA evolved to be responsive to the environment. DNA evolved to be faithfully transmitting over the generations things that we've learned genetically through natural selection. So, you know, it really, it's such an important process, but, you know, there's no need to say it's somehow... uh, speaks against genetics. It's a neat way of thinking about genetics. And increasingly, people are using epigenetics and gene expression as an index of the environment because it is RNA that responds to the environment. So it's a great question. There's so much to say about it, but um, uh, there's an awful lot written about it as well, books and books. Thank you. Okay, and the gentleman at the back? Um, There was a paper recently published in Nature, um, uh, Genetic uh, Correlates of Social Infrastructure, or Stratification, stratification, which I guess takes what you've been talking about and then overlays that on a geography. So we're not looking at the individuals, but looking at geographic regions so that you could look at the differences there, which leads very much into the whole issue of inequality and why certain regions seem to find it very difficult, well, you know what I'm going to say. So I'd love, love to hear what you've got to say about it. Yeah, well, um, in the paperback edition, which came out in June, I have an afterword that talks about my reaction to the response to the book. And one of those is about group differences. Why don't I talk about group differences, like geographical, but people are more concerned about ethnic differences or class differences. And there's several answers to that. One is that most of the differences are individual differences. So, as I said, with boys and girls and verbal and math ability, explaining 1% of the variance, it's like 99% overlap. You know, there's not, no, no real difference there, even though it's statistically significant. So most of the differences are within. And second, we don't have good ways of getting at the causes of average differences between groups. And, and third, I guess, is I don't have to study everything. And so I stay away from group differences because... I'm still kind of a coward about these things, and it's politically so explosive. And the reason there's so much heat and so little light, I think, is there's no good way to nail these things. So that study you're talking about does suggest that um, there's uh, migratory differences. You know, it's the idea that people who are genetically better off um, migrate to areas that they can... It's a nature of nurture thing. They migrate to areas they can make use of their talents better. But um, So it's a bit of a cop-out, but... I I think I don't have to study everything, you know? (laughs) Okay, we've got time for just a couple more questions. Um, There's a woman right at the back, and then um, uh, the person with the uh, white shirt and and beige vest here. Uh, Hello, I'm just, I'm really curious about educational attainment and the fact that you you looked at intelligence and um, readability and sort of academic kind of, aspects but you seem to have also be talking about the importance of not the non-academic in do you have any thoughts around yeah. how schools could change their curriculum possibly as a result of this kind of work well what i would like to say is and when educational attainment first came out you might ask why why do they study that I and mean, it's such a chorus variable isn't it well the answer is every genome-wide association study that's been done asks about demographic characteristics Ethnicity, for example, and years of schooling. So you can get these big samples to detect small effects for years of schooling, educational attainment. And people thought, well, it's so coarse. But actually, I'm becoming to realize it's actually a very good variable in some ways because it's functional. And it's measuring what it takes to get through university. That accounts for about 70% of the variance in educational attainment. And what it takes is not just intelligence, not just prior achievement, about a third of the variance is due to personality characteristics like grit, perseverance, and mental stability. And 
That's why that lousy variable, the polygenic score for educational attainment, predicts depression better than genome-wide association studies of depression. And that's because if you get depressed a lot, it, it's less likely that you'll get through university. So I think it's, it's kind of a neat example in some ways, but I'm particularly excited that you then take that and apply it to educational achievement, and you explain 15% of the variance, more than the variance you explain in educational attainment. And I think we're a long way from suggesting curriculum changes, though, which was the last part of your question. And the gentleman at the front. There are lots of questions I'd like to ask, but I think I'd better read your book well, first. I think I'm doing a book signing after this, so if people, <laughs> okay. people want to um, hang out. Yeah. It's really just going slightly back to the epigen epigenetics. I seem to remember that studies in the Netherlands looking at third generation from the famine yeah. were showing that they were still showing uh, what was put down to be epigenetic effects yeah. Uh, yeah. that the grandparents had suffered. And I just wondered, although that's very trivial in uh, probably overall impact, mm -hmm. whether some epigenetics effect might be inherited for... Yeah. You know, uh, okay, so this is the Dutch famine study, and the idea is it's showing some effects maybe mediated prenatally in later generations. It's dubious. I mean, despite the fact that that's classic finding, uh, a lot of people are questioning those results not because they don't like epigenetics, it's just there are many alternative explanations. There's the mouse studies as well that are in disrepute largely. So it's, it's possible, we know there are some genes that work in kind of an epigenetic way, but as a general idea, it, it's, it's, a, it's a losing proposition because there are major processes that the uh, zygote goes through to wipe out all previous marks. Because you want RNA to take over in the environment you're in. You don't want to know these things in the generation before. DNA gives you the fidelity across generations. So a few marks slip through, but the general feeling is that they're random. They're mistakes. They were meant to be wiped out. So I would still say, and this is an important point to remember, because um, you'll get a rise out of people if you say this, that all you inherit is DNA sequence differences. Okay, well, we're going to have to wrap it up there because we've run out of time, but thank you so much. Thank you to everyone for coming. Yes. Thank Good you for ideas. some great questions. As Robert said, he's going to stay on in the foyer outside. There'll be copies of Blueprint for sale and he'll be signing them. And we had a little plug earlier, but we do have a beautiful cafe and coffee shop downstairs, Rothmel, <laughs> so do head down there and continue the conversation. But for now, just please join me again in thanking our speaker for today, Professor Robert Cloming. Thank Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.